I'm Jerry Marks, and I'm the only one of this group that's not retired, but I have been at the game for quite a while. Uh, and, uh, and you often get into meetings when something doesn't go right, and I guess this one's following through. I was raised up at uh, Townsend uh, and started in the Missoula Extension Office in 1969, so I've been at it a while. I think I'll have each of these folks uh, say a little bit about themselves. And uh, I've encouraged them to tell uh, one story, and if we got time, two stories. We're going to cut this off in an hour to give at least 15 minutes so you people can ask questions. Um, and I think you need some uh, yeah, real-life experiences of what we've gone through and how we work with the people. I thought Wada Crusado did a very good job of, of giving us a good background on that. So I'm going to move go this direction. You want to go ahead and start with Rob? <laughs> it's not that I'm the oldest. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm uh, Rob Johnson. I'm from the Bitterroot Valley or Valley County. Uh, retired after 40 years of extension work in Montana. And uh, very glad to be invited here. It's, it's a joy to be able to share and uh, come and get acquainted. I'm actually a historical society member. But that's another story. We won't go, we won't go there. Uh, I retired in uh, 2008, and uh, been trying to catch up with my retirement ever since. You got to retire to something, not from something. There's a lesson there, and uh, you can get over your head so fast. But we won't go there either. One thing I thought you might enjoy, rather than the real story, is a poem. You know, President Crosado talked about Poetry Day, and uh, I just happened to have a little poem. I didn't write it, but. Uh, a fellow you may know did. His name is Baxter Black. I'll bet some of you, or practically all of you, have heard Baxter Black. Uh, he's a cowboy poet. Uh, he's also been a veterinarian, and he's really an entertainer. He, he actually has humor about him. And, you know, it's kind of special. Uh, he also has, I never was clear whether it was a daughter or a son-in-law that was county agent in, in Colorado. And they may still be. I do not know. Uh, but anyway, uh, he wrote a poem called The First County Agent. I'll bet some of you have heard it. And uh, it goes kind of like this. This is by Baxter Black. Uh, it's about Clarence of Euphrates. Clarence of Euphrates was just a simple man. He graduated A school from Tigris A&M. It only took him seven days to garner his degree. Of course, days are longer then. And no one took P.E. His goals were really modest. <coughs> Excuse me. Help clean up the air, save the world from ignorance, and become a millionaire. Never be complacent. Never always seek perfection and never be complacent. So Clarence of Euphrates became a county agent. His first job was the garden. The year was 2 A.S. To clarify, that's after snake, and Eden was a mess. <laughs> he organized the fair board, although his paperwork was slow, and only told the state director no more than he should know. <laughs> his achievements in 4-H work was a tribute to the kids. On a field trip to Egypt, they built the pyramids. <laughs> He wrote a million pamphlets, read record books galore, and patted pigs and lambs and kids until his hands and heart was sore. 
He wrote a million pamphlets, read record, I said that. He put on endless meetings and countless demonstrations with faulty slide projectors and drafty ventilations. In the Eaton County Stockman's, he was honored by his peers and served as secretary for 700 years. <laughs> Local folks would cringe in fear and hide out in the thickets because every time that Clarence came, he'd sell them raffle tickets. Oh, <laughs> uh, let me think about this a minute. He always judged the apple pies at the Eden County Fair, although ancient legends warn of apples to beware. But Clarence ate them anyway and scoffed at their reaction. But alas, he finally died of apple pie compaction. <laughs> We like a poem, Jim. Well, I don't have a poem, but I'll give you a demonstration because he's kind of talked about it. Uh, I had an opportunity to work in Liberty County and also in Lewis and Clark County as a county agent and then spent a lot of time at the uh, State 4-H office here on campus. So when we were thinking about this panel and this sort of thing, I remembered I had this 4-H jacket. And so I went, you hold the mic because I have to tell you something about it. So um, I went and got this jacket so I could show you something that was popular probably during the mid of the hundred years that we're talking about. Not in 1914 and not necessarily today. So I had one, but let me tell you what's happened as you kind of look at it. When I was, <coughs> when I got it, I was tall and slim and now I'm shorter and thicker. <laughs> but I'll tell you a story. I guess I would go with this one, looking at the 100-year period. One of the things that Charlie and Betty and I got involved with a few years ago was doing an oral interview of which the Historical Society has a collection of those, and I think you have this one. We interviewed uh, Dorothy Osheim, who was very active in homemakers and all kinds of extension work, and she was the wife of our director. And um, we decided that she had quite a history because she did a lot of things, not only in support of her husband, but of recording history with the whole thing. So I um, would like to take a look at what has happened since 1914 to the current day in some aspects of it. The interview that we did and have on tape now on those files, if you would ever like to look at it, is looking at how things were in Sheridan County, Montana, uh, really when the Homesteading Act that the President referred to today, which came about just about the same time as the, um, the Extension Act, and so they parallel pretty well. So let's see what was happening in Sheridan County with that. Her husband grew up there. There's a gate, an, entra <clears throat> an entrance to campus uh, on the west side there that's a tribute to the Ossimes in Sheridan County. So um, Charlie and I went and we looked at old annual reports from Sheridan County when they were first written uh, on up. And one of the stories in there is about how the extension agent and the state staff people were trying to help 
homesteaders or people in Sheridan County get established. Uh, you know who made the most trips up in there? The poultry specialist and the dairy specialist because that's where a lot of things were going on and so the poultry specialist is teaching how to caponize chickens and increase egg production and this sort of thing and she's, the dairy specialist is working on ways of increasing the milk production of cows and one of the things that they did at that time is they had some dairy heifers shipped out by rail from Wisconsin to give to farm families in Sheridan County to see what a good milk producer would do. One of the people who got one of those was our director, Torla Flossheim. Okay, <clears throat> so dairy and um, um, poultry being big ones in this area. So we look at oh, what's happening. I want to look at one other area too. We'll look at those but I want to look at one other area too, and that is how word is disseminated. You know, how did things go out? You could do it in meetings where people may come and attend, but the other one that was most common was the weekly newspaper. And there were a number of newspapers in little towns in Sheridan County at that time. Okay, let's flip over and look at what's happening today, a hundred years later. I don't think, I may be wrong, but I'm not sure we would find a poultry operation in Sheridan County. Neither do I think there is a great dairy production in Sheridan County either. It's switched tremendously. And one of the people that I think about when we were doing this, one of the retired county agents now is uh, Terry Anvik, who is in Sheridan County. He served as an agent in that county for a number of years, and now he and his two brothers are huge wheat operations, and peas and other crops, but he has a story now. Every time that the, um, what's the little magazine that comes out? Oh, you don't know. Well, y'all think of it. Prairie Star. But it, Prairie Star. Prairie Star. Prairie Star, when it comes out now, there's always a story in there about Terry Anvik and what's going on with the farm. And such a change with that one from this time till now. Another change that I think of that's really occurred, what's happened to uh, media, to dissemination, and uh, these little gadgets and, and all of that, so we have an entirely different thing. Those little newspapers are gone for the most part. And some others, I think, are also having a hard time competing with the coverage that the Pope has received since he got in here. And the message that he's leaving with us that we used to get through the newspapers now is spread not only in this country, but worldwide. So such a difference in poultry and dairy and media. That gives you a little change. Well, I'm going to take over, you guys. <laughs> this is not an unusual process between Jim and I, for heaven's sakes. But I do want to follow up on something that he has said regarding the, the poultry and the dairy. Um, uh, 
just to give you the background, I wrote this uh, past history of 4-H in Montana, and I was just astounded the kinds of things that happened with um, with kids and and uh, extension. But <clears throat> he talks about poultry. The goal of all of those projects and all of that work that was done was to get a, a good milk cow, e.g. nutrition, onto every farm in the state. And so <clears throat> they needed to have good uh, producers to do that, and so that's, that's one way to get it done. The same was with chickens. We have a good flock of chickens on every farm, then that's, that's a good deal. Everybody can, can be more healthy. And when it all comes down to it from a home economist standpoint, my concern would be nutrition and um, the health of the family. <clears throat> from the agriculture standpoint, it might be from the production uh, of, of milk or beef or whatever it might be. But you see it crosses over and one depends on the other. And so extension agents, um, I think, are really, really, really good at bridging that gap and making things um, work for families in their communities. Uh, in Sheridan County, back up there, <clears throat> one of the stories I found, he talks about chickens, is that uh, one of our 4-H leaders uh, decided that she wanted to in improve the chicken situation there. And so she brought in some new chicks and started a 4-H club with those chicks. And it ultimately ended up in a hatchery. And then that hatchery uh, made available to all in the county um, chickens that were better producers, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that I think was good. Uh, one of my own stories, um, I'm Betty McCoy, by the way, and I grew up in Cascade County. And I'm, um, I decided that I've been involved with extension for well over its hundred years. Um, and I, I think that probably is true of, of most of us up here. But I started in extension as a little person um, with my, I probably was three, when my sister joined 4-H. My mother was a 4-H leader and she had been working in Valley County uh, with, um, with the extension service there as well. And I have not stopped. And so, you know, I'm not three anymore for sure. And so, um, I have then had a career in extension and so on. My background then is uh, as a home economist, and I'll tell you a quick story about uh, one of my assignments as a county agent was to work in Billings in Yellowstone County. And I got a call one day from a lady who was canning uh, meat and uh, she said, I've canned my meat. I think it was chicken, I don't remember what it was, but whatever it was. And she said, I used the water bath. Uh, is that safe? I said, no, you'll need to undo it and start over again. You can recan it, but you have to use a pressure canner to do that. Well, then she proceeds to argue with me about whether this was a, a acceptable or not. And so I said, well, you know, this is the accepted practice, blah, blah. And she argued and argued. And I finally just said, you know, this is what I have to offer for recommendation. It's, it's scientific-based. But in the end, the decision is yours. And if you want to, do, to, to 
provide your family with, with um, safe food, then this is the practice that you should follow. And uh, she was not a happy camper. But the, but the ideal situation that extension agents find themselves, I think, is often in situations where people don't want to change their practices. <coughs> they think they're right. And so you find yourself um, working with um, a little bit of tension all the time, trying to say, um, you know, this is the practice that we have to recommend because it's scientific in the end and, and, and it would um, serve you better. And I think every single one of us could probably uh, tell multitudes of stories about having discussions with people who didn't want to change their practices. And after all, in extension, those of you who are familiar with 4-H, a lot of the programs that, that started in 4-H were to help adults change practices. And we're not so far away from that still, but, but fairs started out with lots of um, projects where kids would take their projects. The adults came to, say, to see how those projects were producing and what they were doing. They were huge, huge events. Fairs today are not that, but that was when they started, that was an important piece. And uh, I think we've all been in that situation. So I'll let Charlie go from here. <coughs> Well, I'm Charles Rust, and I'm an immigrant. <laughs> I'm the only one of this group that wasn't born in Montana, so I immigrated here from the great state of North Dakota. <clears throat> but uh, Montana has adopted me some 55 or 6 years ago. But given what Jim and, and uh, Betty talked about, I lived through some of those experiences on the farm. I joined 4-H when I was about 10 years old back in 1941, but in that time period, chickens were pretty important. But you didn't talk about chicken harvesting when you lined the family up and it's chicken slaughtering and camping day and picking, that canning day and picking feathers off those chickens. Jim says he really could really pick them fast. I hated that job. <laughs> Being the youngest of three boys, I was assigned naturally the dirtiest job. <clears throat> so I could feel real macho, so I was the one that chopped the heads off. <clears throat> but those were, and we don't have chickens. We got rid of the chickens when I was about uh, 17, 18. I stayed on the farm and we went through 4-H and, uh, and we milked cows and I hated that job. And I milked cows when my brother went in the service and said, my brother likes those cows so we're going to keep them. <clears throat> I go in the service. He sells the cows. <laughs> so uh, we had dairy cows and chickens and dealt with all that sort of stuff. In the meantime, I'd had, you know, 10, 11 years of 4-H associated with the county agent and the club congress and all that good stuff. And later was selected, as Betty was, to be an international farm youth exchange student. And that was managed by the Extension Service, which is an international outreach program that was established in basically Betty helped me, basically a cultural exchange and it was established that you have agricultural people in various countries relate to each other and later on when Kennedy was elected president then they used that as the basic to develop a much more sophisticated program the Peace Corps. Well, a little bit of that now. How about an extension, extension in Montana. I was hired as an extension specialist in Montana on January 1, 1963. 
<clears throat> this uh, specialist position is not quite as exciting as the county agent's position, but had some things. And in 1948, we're talking about all kinds of historical stuff and lots of data that you've heard here in the last hour. 1948, they passed the Agricultural Marketing Act, and that was established primarily because agricultural producers nationwide had gone through World War II and developed all of this advanced agricultural practices to produce more food and everything, and then once we got Europe established, all of a sudden we had a lot of surpluses. How do we market and continue to do this? So they established the Ag Marketing Act to help improve uh, marketing in agriculture. And I was hired under those funds to work with the farmers and ranchers of Montana in marketing their products. So we had several different projects going at that time that I inherited, but a couple of little things that were kind of slick is, you, you know, we were just kind of redeveloping some of the small communities around the state. So we developed some feasibility plans. We had a little manual that we'd go out and work with people. So I did some neat little projects. Uh, I went to Dillon. They wanted to build a meatpacking facility there. And by the time we sat down and worked through all the numbers, well, the guy says, well, that doesn't look like that's going to work. And so uh, we'll do something. We'll look for something else. So that happened in several different places. Right about that time, everybody, you know, we raised the barley and we raised the beef and, you know, we had to put them together and slaughter them and all that and build feedlots. We did some work on uh, feasibility of feedlots, uh, one of them up in northeastern Montana finally established itself, even though there was some question, but it operated for uh, 12 or 14 years. <clears throat> and uh, so we had some of those things. One of the fun little things that we did some trade area surveys with small towns who, you know, they were declining. So what can we do to keep ourselves together? So <clears throat> one of them, uh, Fairfield one, and Stanford's another one, and then a couple others. But I remember the Fairfield ones, first one we did, sat down with a committee of local people, and <clears throat> okay, what do you want to know? Well, you know, our trade area is shrinking down. People are going to Great Falls, and et cetera. And, and all right, so we went through all this stuff. Well, they wanted to know, uh, where they should advertise. They had three, four radio stations that covered the area, some of the merchants. So we listed off this and developed a survey for them to send out to uh, the community to determine what you wanted from the community of Fairfield. <clears throat> well, lo and behold, uh, there's a radio station in Great Falls that had not been included. <clears throat> well, if you've never been called to the president's office or the Dean's office, why, when you're a specialist and staff member, you need that experience, which I had. <laughs> so we talked about it. Well, uh, Charlie, you better go talk to this guy in Great Falls. <clears throat> and he was a blustery sort of a guy, and we had a long conversation, and he was demanding that we redo it. I said, hey, the, we talked to the committee, that we put down what the committee said, what they heard in the area. If you're serving that area, something's wrong. So anyway, we had a little a tense uh, sort of a deal there. Then we followed up <clears throat> with some, <coughs> excuse me, as I get more mature, my voice disappears. And there was a time when I, well, I could talk in any auditorium in Montana without a speaker, but <clears throat> it's not so great anymore. Anyhow, the, <coughs> the grain producers, uh, you talked about, 
northeastern Montana, all the way across the High Line. At that time period, seems strange now, but in the 60s, our grain was all moving east pretty much, been, uh, depended on the Minneapolis market. But we knew that some things were moving the other way, but how do you find out? Nobody would talk to you. You know, well, where's it going? What am I going to produce? What market am I producing for? <clears throat> so uh, at that time, we had done some work with the growers, and they had established, they got the Wheat Marketing Committee Act passed, and kind of like the Morrill Act, it took five times before it got passed in Montana by 1967. So they funded a small uh, a grant for us to try to ascertain which great way the grain was moving out of Montana, because we talked to people, or great, great railroad wouldn't help us. Uh, oh boy, thank you. Uh, that top one, that's the one I want. Oh, uh, yes. Thank you. I had one of those in my pocket, but then when I suck on those, I, you know, I'm... <laughs> Went back and uh, met, you know, we were working with the railroads a little bit, and so I was oh, sent back to St. Paul, and I talked to the vice president of the railroads. He said, young man, if there's anything needs to be done in the transportation area, the railroad will do it. Well, of course, <clears throat> that wasn't what the farmers thought, so we did this survey. I, I, they provided some money. We sent uh, three guys out across northern Montana, talked to elevators and, uh, and the local uh, depot agents at that time who had manifests and tried to collect as much information of who and where you sold your stuff to. <clears throat> we collected that in the next trip. I went back to St. Paul and went into the office and met with the vice president and I'm telling me, hey, they, you know, we're finding out that a lot of this grain out of northeastern Montana is going west and, uh, <clears throat> oh, 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 well, pretty soon they take me down to another room, pull out all these ledger sheets and they show me the data they have from all their agents, then I have my data that the guys have collected and we look at it and see how it compares, you know, I got more different information than they got, which they want to know about. So we <clears throat> talk about all this stuff, and uh, then they fold theirs up. They don't offer to give it to me, and I'm working for a public institution. I folded mine up, too, and we went home. <laughs> <clears throat> but the reason we needed that kind of information, the rail, rail rates were very high, and uh, still are high in Montana, we're so far from all our markets, but our growers begin to know where where the grain was moving to, and uh, we set up a system. Then, with cooperation with the Wheat and Barley Committee, with the Ag Statistics Service, where that data was automatically collected from the grain trade. Grain trade didn't want to give that information out either. Oh, that's going to take a lot of time. Uh, well, we kind of need to know that for our growers to know what to produce for, and so it now it's automatic and it's still collected regularly. And of course, our wheat producers, if you ever listened to them in the last 30, 40 years, we know that uh, almost, what, between 70 and 80 percent of our, our production goes into the uh, oriental market, into, into Asia and those areas, which was very important because then these you know what kind of varieties, and we had other connections coming back from uh, Japan through Western Wheat Association, now the, the National Association, and 
you know, we adjust them or a variety of production, storage, grades, all this sort of thing so they could produce for a specific market. But that did not exist. That information point is did not exist in 63, coming out of World War II and all that stuff. These changes occurred. So that's one of the things we worked on very early in my career in extension service, which is, uh, you know, a few years ago, extension's 100 years old now. But <clears throat> so anyway, uh, Mr. Marks, that's a couple of little stories and specialists work out of, in case people don't understand the structure, specialists work out of the, the office here at Montana State University. And county agents, of course, are throughout the state. And I let uh, Rob defend and Jerry defend the county agents because they are wonderful people to work for. And without them, we would not have been able to accomplish these things. Jerry Marks. I, I want to follow up on something Charlie said that just brought a story. This is this will be quick. He talked about the international programs, and and um, not only was I an exchange student, but I also um, worked with the exchange program uh, in the state 4-H office. But in working with that program, I had to come face to face with some of my prejudices, or some more perhaps importantly was some other people's prejudices, and I think extension workers have to deal with that on a fairly regular basis. Um, we had, uh, when I was working with, um, in the State 4-H office with the program, we had a, a, a young man that came from um, Africa, and his culture was such that he, he didn't feel much inclined to take instruction from a female. And I thought, mm. so I had a choice, I think, uh, and I think extension make, workers make these choices regularly. Uh, I could either get up on my high horse and worry about that piece, or the ultimate goal was to help this young man have an experience in the U.S. that was a positive experience. So I went to Jim, I was, he was my boss, and I went to Jim and I said, this isn't working with me. Can you do these things? And I provided him with the information. Then he talked to, to this young man, and then all was cool, you know. And uh, so I think um, extension there's, there deals with some of those underneath um, kinds of societal issues. In my own experience, I went to Venezuela. And I just thought to myself, I just need to see somebody with blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> so guess what? My host family took me to a German um, area, and I saw those folks. And I thought, well, this isn't a big deal. So then I went back, and I was just fine. Uh, so I have to say, I think that, that you have to come face to face with some of your prejudices in, in many ways. When you work with the public, and particularly when you work with with uh, their families and their income and the things that really make their um, their situations work. I got to work with the international program on a state basis for a while, and, and I was in charge of the IFI program when Betty was in Venezuela. And she wrote and told us that the thing that she really missed was toilet paper. <laughs> so I wrote letters to her on toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs>
one becomes very creative. It's hard to beat all that. Yeah, I think, uh, um, at least for me, the connection with the people has been, uh, I guess, early on, and probably early on in my childhood. Uh, growing up in towns, and uh, there were five of us, and, and my mother was really worried whether any of us would amount to a hail of beans or stay out of trouble. And and she she identified 4-H as something that might be important for us. And at the time, Broadwater County didn't have a county agent, so she connected with a county agent, Lewis and Clark, who was Brick Vaughn. And Brick come out and, and helped us get organized. Um, Growing up in Broadwater County in the 50s, one of the biggest impacts was the creation of the Canyon Ferry Reservoir. And all the families that had, were down there in the bottom had to go, and, and it was very, very traumatic. I, I think it had a big impact on me. And I'm going to say 4-H is one of the things that as a community, we would gather around the projects, the families, and a lot of the things we did. So that, that was an important part. <coughs> I was going to share a little story on Missoula, maybe a little bit on the same vein. How many are here from Missoula? We got one. Okay. I probably tell all kinds of stories on Missoula. Uh, going to Missoula as an intern, and, and um, generally in those days you trained under a county agent. Well, that one went back to school, and so. So they said I could, I could kind of try to run the office that, that winter. Um, one of the things that uh, occurred, Mazzola was, was really on the verge of change. Certainly something I didn't see at the time, but it certainly really started with the subdivisions in the 70s. And what was a timber count, county really has changed dramatically. But we had a director, Torfossheim, who really thought county agents should be more involved in community activities, not just <coughs> teaching kids and, and uh, agriculture and whatever. We need to get more involved in, in issues of economic development, that type of thing. In the west side, there were three counties that come together that organized the Bitterroot Resource and Conservation Development Project. And one of the projects that come out of uh, that the people wanted was, was dealing with a place called Harper's Bridge. And I agreed to take it on. Uh, Harper's Bridge was out by Frenchtown, and people in the Big Flat area and the Lolo area would travel through there and cross the bridge to get to the pulp mill. They worked at the pulp mill. The bridge has a history put in by Anaconda Company that put it to Clarkport to get over there to, to log. And they were done logging and, uh, and what to do with the bridge. So, so they made a deal with the county and, uh, for a buck, and the county had a bridge. Well, over time, this bridge kind of fell into disrepair. County not having much dollars to deal with it, closed it. So that led to this Harper's Bridge project. They, they wanted that bridge fixed. And so I agreed to meet with them. and, and uh, I swear that first meeting I spent the first time, first, at least an hour of it, they saw me as an agent of the government and couldn't be trusted. So we had to go through quite a bit of discussion that I wasn't really there, I was more there to try to help them and all that. And then we went through a discussion, you know, this, this is a major project to try to get this bridge repaired or replaced or whatever. And, uh, and that you're going to have to make a need for it, you're going to have to try to create some public interest. 
uh, may have to get the Missoulian involved and uh, that type of thing. And so they did get themselves kind of organized. Well, over the next several weeks, they were demonstrating out in front of the courthouse. They, they had petitions going. They had the media front page coverage. We are talking about Missoula. Yes. And, uh, and pretty soon, I had a county commissioner come to my office, Dick Ostrigan. And Dick looked at me and he said, who in the hell organized those people? <laughs> I thought my career was gone. <laughs> Well, I take, I had those commissioners, particular Dick and one other one. We went to a lot of meetings together, and and if eventually, it, and it took a lot of meetings. Um, and today, Missoula has a Kona Ranch Bridge, that was the replacement. Uh, and when I finished my earn, internship, I thought I might as well just get my bags packed. And they said. And, and they brought in, uh, Extension Administration brought in wiser, a little older experienced folks that wouldn't get into those kinds of fixes. And the commissioner says, no, we want Jerry Marks to stay. So that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm there. Now, Harker's Bridge uh, continued for a while. Uh, there was a, a gentleman that approached the commissioner and said, you know, that bridge is still safe enough. You can walk across it. You can ride horses across it. Yeah, they agreed to that. So he was going to put in a livery stable on one side of the bridge, and, and folks could ride off up into the mountains. Well, he thought that was a good deal, so that was what was going to happen. Except his deal of putting up a livery stable didn't work. He couldn't get the land. So he was stabling the horses on the bridge. <laughs> Pretty soon the manure was going in the river. <laughs> the health department got all excited. Front page coverage again of this Harper's Bridge. <laughs> and a flood come along and took out one span of the bridge, manure and all. And they decided, well, we better remove it. So today there's some piers in, that, in, the, in the river there. And I think about training the county agent my first winter there. <laughs> Anybody else want to tell a story? <laughs> Just make it nice. Uh, I was thinking of a story on Betty. Uh, <laughs> this, this comes from my family background. I was raised in Dawson County and in 4-H, and my sisters about 10 years younger than I uh, were in 4-H club and they, it was fair time, Dawson County Fair, and uh, they both took cooking and uh, both made cookies for uh, display at the fair, for exhibit at the fair. And the area home economist was Betty. Oh, please. And uh, <laughs> it isn't as bad as it sounds. Uh, it could be. Anyway, uh, they were proud of their cookies. The, the, the real thing about it was they made cookies from the same batch, the same batter. And one cooked in one pan and one cooked in the other pan. And when they went to the fair, the ribbon difference was very noticeable. <laughs> and, and it was the same batch of cookies, but I won't take this any further. <laughs> they didn't really know the judge. I, I knew the judge. But I was the but, agent. I wasn't the judge. <laughs> I do. 
<laughs> I do have a story about judging cookies, and it isn't that one. I, uh, <clears throat> you have all kinds of opportunities, I think, to teach or to educate or to help folks learn from their situations. And uh, at one of the fairs that I was judging at, it was a plate of cookies. And this, um, and, and at the time we were doing um, interview judging where kids could come up and talk with us about what they did and how they did it and all that sort of thing. And so this little person, a little boy, <clears throat> I, I don't know, 10, whatever he was, came up with his plate of cookies and usually they bring six cookies on this plate and honestly, they, they were just awful. They were, um, they had, pieces gone out of them and you know they were usually look for uniform color and size and all this and they were just awful and I said well what do you say so I said tell me about how you made your cookies and um, so he did and uh, then I said uh, you know we usually we look for a kind of uniform shape and so on and so on and so I said, what happened to your cookies? They kind of have these little uh, sides out of them and such. Well, he said, a mouse got into them. <laughs> well, you're supposed to, you're supposed to taste them? And so um, I thought, where do I go with this? To have this little person, you know. So it dawned on me that it opened up this whole thing that we could talk about storage of cookies. And so we had quite a long discussion about where he might store his cookies that the mice might not get into. It. And I did not taste those cookies. Was that your sisters? I don't think that was my sisters. Who wants to tell another? <clears throat> I'd like to make in uh, a little personal situation that I got into and how it got resolved and end up with why has extension survived a hundred years. Um, I got out of the army and wasn't sure what to do and I ended up applying for a job with the extension service and I went in and I met with this fellow and he says well um, we can put you on for a little while, this is in February, but we don't know what the legislature is going to do so we don't know whether you'll have a job after uh, June 30th or not and my reaction was that's fine with me I may not want to work with you after that anyway <laughs> then he asked one of the most intriguing questions that I think anybody ever got in an interview he, um, he says to me he says well we could pay you $3,600 a year or we could pay you $3,800 a year and he says what do you think oh, Toledo why <laughs> so I just, I just said, I think 38, and I've wondered ever since why he asked that question. Such a good one, or what if I'd said 36? So uh, I got 38 and got sent out to a county for a while, and about a month later, the situation apparently was resolved with the legislature, and this is how you get a job. Now, nowadays we have search committees and interviews and all this sort of thing, but here's how I did so I was out in Richland County and they called from Bozeman and they said, how would you like to go to Liberty County and become the first agent that they've ever had? And I says, fine, where is it? <laughs> so I find out and then I go into, I spent a little time in Haver and then I went up to Chester 
and I pull into Chester for the first time in my life, and I thought, holy Toledo, if I stay here, this was before the Tiber water got in here, and I thought, if I stay here a year, I'm going to be doing really good. So I'm to meet with the county commissioners. They're in on the hiring procedure, so I pulled into Chester, and I looked for the courthouse by driving up and down the few streets that were there, and there isn't any sign on it, but I finally decided this must be the courthouse. And I'm supposed to meet with a supervisor from Bozeman who's going to introduce me and uh, see what the commissioners think. So I thought he's going to come in from the west, I came in from the east. And there was, the state was had yellow cars in those days, and so I was watching for a yellow car. But I just parked out in front, and it didn't come, and it didn't come. And pretty soon this guy comes out, and he comes over to the car, and he says, Are you Jim Sargent? And I said, Yes. And he's, well, you might just as well come on in. Uh, Harry has gotten the hiccups and he's in the hospital in Great Falls. <laughs> so I go in and I meet the, I meet the uh, other commissioners and we sit around there and this one commissioner says to me, well, what are we supposed to do? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, well, I guess we're supposed to look you over and see if you look all right. And you look all right to me, so I had the job. Well, there's a whole bang to the rest of the story then. And then Extension for years has had an annual conference. And I want to say a word about the annual conferences. Because that fall there was an annual conference here. And I went down to that conference. And you know what the topic was? Uh, something about what changes does extension need to make and I thought holy Toledo I'm just getting here and we're already making changes <laughs> but I think of all the changes that have have occurred in this country in the last hundred years they're phenomenal but I think the thing that has helped extension stay in to doing the role it's, re it's really required about is annual conferences have that talking year after year after year, looking at ways they can improve. So that's why we're still around. With your permission, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to brag a little bit about extension. Uh, and it's going to involve me a little bit, of course, but <laughs> when the communism fell and the, the Berlin Wall was torn down in 89 and communism fell in Eastern Europe, the U.S. government, of course, was very aggressive in meeting with some of these countries and they signed a contract with the country of Poland to send some extension people there to help them adjust to the market economy. <clears throat> I happened to be one of the ten people that was selected to go over and work in these areas. They divided us in, into teams of two, so we were in five different avoid ships in Poland. And I talked a little earlier about doing feasibility studies, which are preliminary to business plans and that sort of thing. So the people would come that I'd meet and go around and talk to. Basically, this is the way it would go. Uh, you're from America, and I want to go into business you show me how to make money. Pretty simple. So, well, and I got that for a few days, so I made a list of about 18 questions. <clears throat> and I said, Shirley, you go answer these 18 questions and then come back and we'll talk. 
which was kind of the first step in it. But uh, and one of my colleagues up at Olson, uh, a couple hundred miles away, was getting some of the same things. So we set up a training program. Then we rephrased it, not feasibility studies, but business plan training. Basically simple because we took it all away. And it turned out to be about a five-day workshop in the end. But we went through some processes for a couple of, of a period of training sessions before we got to that. <clears throat> And then that really took off, and the, uh, after we left, they went ahead and trained uh, over 500 people who then in turn uh, went ahead and uh, trained others in a kind of mushroom because the, the government of Poland that had a, a loan program for farmers and agribusiness people because people a lot of agribusiness is coming. You had to have one of these business plans approved by your local extension agent before you could get funded. This was an element of they knew you had gone through a pretty good process and had a reasonable chance for success. So if the local agent signed off on it, that you had done it. So that's kind of an extension of, of how extension has spread around worldwide and been very effective and was really fun to be part of that and talk about being in a different kind of a situation. Uh, some people who just a year or two out of a planned economy trying to get their thought processes. And one of the early questions we always got, I want to get a loan, you help me get it. And my question is, how do you plan to pay it back? Oh, I don't have to pay it back. Well, wait a minute, things have changed, guys, you know. Under the communism, they didn't have to. So anyway, that's just an example of how extension has reached out around the world in other ways than the cultural exchanges we talked about earlier. Uh, 